Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 192, Red 34. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number 14 from Benjamin Evans. The message is 16 seconds long and comes from the spring or summer of 1990. Here we go. Benjamin Evans, Red 34, Toulouse Trek, Gone with the Wind, 16 and a half, blah, 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 um, hey. I must have been responding to one of your outgoing messages. It was asking for a list of some kind. I can't imagine what list I would be making that would have Gone with the Wind on it. Such a horrible racist propaganda film for the Confederacy. So the last time we were talking about the origins of Drag King, so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask is about your first time recording. I imagine it was a single. Yes, it was a song that was composed by Stelianos Valavanis called Jazz Monster and a song called Backburner that Barrett Heaton and I put together on the other side. You put together a tape before for your previous band? Yeah. yeah. In that situation, you know, I was a high school student. My friends were in high school. We went to a recording studio in Massachusetts that uh, my uncle had been in a new wave band called uh, The Broadquest, and they knew the guys from that studio. So we recorded there, and uh, they were like, you play, now you play your part, now you play your part. Um, we just played our instruments in the recording booth separately. Uh, it was just two songs, and it, they, they recorded it, they mixed it, they mastered it. We did it all in one day, and that was it. We had no, um, you know, kind of control over the process or the sound or anything, you know? And when we recorded with Drag King, of course, it was uh, completely different. We had a uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder. Uh, that had eight tracks, and uh, it was uh, in Stell's mother's basement. So we did everything ourselves, and we experimented constantly in terms of what microphone to use, how to position the microphone, whether to record these two instruments together, separately. So everything could be changed and re-recorded, um, infinite overdubs. Because basically you didn't have to pay for the studio. Right, exactly. Yeah, we had infinite amount of time. And that can be a blessing and a curse because you can never finish. Uh, I would say that first recording, we probably, it, it was like months. On two tracks. Yeah. How did you end up recording with Trixie? We wanted to have a physical vinyl record. And we wanted it to be affiliated with some label. And then our friends were starting a local Chicago record label. And so, you know, I think we went to them and said, hey, we want to do this. And uh, they were like, okay. And um, it was so much fun to actually have a record that we had made. And then we, w we went around to every record store like Reckless Records, Ajax Records, Dr. Wax, uh, Wax Tracks. I think there were still a Tower Records at the time. And you would essentially put them on consignment. You know, Reckless Records was not going to buy the records from you because, you know, we were obviously a, a very small local band and the music was pretty far out there. And then if they didn't sell, 
we left them there for a while. And then a long time later, we had sold out of them. And we wanted to have more to sell at our shows. So we went to all the record stores and collected the unsold ones and whatever money we had made. I mean, we would also mail them to all, you know, our friends that had fanzines or like famous fanzines like Maximum Rock and Roll. And we would mail them to all the the uh, college radio stations uh, like WFMU. Even if we lost money because we're sending them all our records out to these radio stations, if we were like driving around and we turned on WNUR and they were playing our record, that was worth more to us than any amount of like monetary profit. I'm sure it was played on HBK. And WNUR, uh, which is Northwestern Station. And uh, we got contacted by some students at Carleton College for us to come out and play there. So we went out there to uh, Minnesota and um, played at that school in this you know little theater that they had. And uh, there was a pipe of some kind near the ceiling it was bizarrely bent and they were like oh yeah that's from when jesus lizard played here last week and the lead singer of jesus lizard swung on that pipe and bent it so uh it definitely helped you to get at least one gig yeah and there was like some guys uh in ann arbor michigan that got in touch with us and we we played there in just like the basement of this house with a band called couch i mean we were all music fans and so to play a gig where you get to, to hang out with other music fans and listen to other bands, that was fantastic. Clearly, there are many connections here to my interview a few weeks back with Robin Shopes, who discussed the founding of Trixie Records. So I thought it would be useful to review the record stores where Drag King's 7-inch single and other Trixie releases might have been sold. First, Ajax Records was the store of Tim Adams, who managed a label of the same name. Adams was also the key source of information for Robin when she set up Trixie Records. He began his distribution enterprise out of his home, but in 1993 decided to rent a storefront on Chicago Avenue. Unfortunately, after losing his lease in 1995, Adams was forced to relocate his shop twice over just a few years, and in 1999, he left the record business for good. The next place to note is Dr. Wax, which opened its Lincoln Park store in 1980 and over time had four locations, including in Hyde Park. The Hyde Park shop was also the last outlet to survive, until closing in 2010. The similarly named Wax Tracks had its roots in Denver and moved to Chicago in 1978, where it attracted the same punks and outsiders who found a home at Medusa's nightclub in the 1980s. While the store closed in 1996, a documentary celebrating its role in youth culture was released in 2017, titled Industrial Accident, The Story of Wax Tracks Records. The big box retail chain Tower Records originated with a single Sacramento, California store 
back in 1960 and did not arrive in Chicago until 1991. At that time, when vinyl seemed to be dying, it sold CDs almost exclusively. By the 2000s, it was CD sales that hit the skids, so the company went bankrupt in 2006, shutting down its store on North Clark in the fall of that year. Finally, Reckless Records, a British chain, opened its first Chicago store in 1988, and with its focus on indie labels and now the vinyl revival, it continues to thrive with three Chicago locations. This podcast thrives with just one location, pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to Ben for his record of the past. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.